Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. The Faith at Work Sermon Podcast is intended to help you apply the Bible and your faith to the issues that you face in everyday life, at home and at work. And I hope that you will be blessed and enlightened as you engage with God's Word. Today I'm going to talk about an issue that Jesus addressed often with his own disciples. What it means to be great. It's a topic that we hear a lot about as we are assaulted with constant political rhetoric. With electioneering already underway for the next presidential election, we're going to hear even more about it. So what does it mean to be great, both as a country and as an individual? And how should we aspire to greatness? Or should we? I always try to stay away from partisan politics, even when I'm dealing with issues that arise from the political scene. It may seem counterintuitive, but I think it's possible to speak about politics without being political. In our current context, when you hear the phrase, make America great, or make America great again, your thoughts probably turn to President Donald Trump and his enduring campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, which has been anachronized as MAGA. However, Donald Trump is far from the first or only American politician to use these words. It was used at least as long ago as 1940 when a Republican senator from Wisconsin, Alexander Wiley, said, America needs a leader who can coordinate labor, capital, and management, who can give the man of enterprise encouragement, who can give them a spirit which will beget vision. That will make America great again. Probably more of us are familiar with Ronald Reagan saying it. Let's make America great again in his 1980 presidential campaign. And the phrase certainly isn't exclusively used by Republican politicians either. President Bill Clinton, campaigning for his wife Hillary in 2008, said that electing her as President of the United States would make America great again. And, if I'm not mistaken, he may have used it in his own campaign as well. It should hardly come as a surprise that this is such a frequently used political slogan. There are so many slogans flying around that they begin to lose their meaning. Although particular politicians and parties would like to lay claim to American greatness and that only they can deliver greatness, the desire to identify with greatness is universal. It's common intellectual property. Who wouldn't want to be a part of something great? It's the common human aspiration. I would point out one important word in that phrase that can easily skip our attention. That word is again. Tacking on the word again to make America great implies that there was some idyllic time in the past when America was great. Also implied is that America somehow and at some undefined time forfeited its greatness. We were great but we aren't great anymore. 
It's like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, they lived in paradise but fell from grace and were expelled to struggle in a less-than-ideal world. It's also like the story of the kingdom of Israel, which achieved greatness under the rule of King David, but also because of its arrogance and disobedience, was conquered and fell into ruin and never attained such lofty status again. Well, what's so great about being great anyway? Do we really want to be great? Should we want to be great? Well, Jesus had a few things to say on the subject. One of the most familiar of Jesus' teachings about greatness comes from Luke 22:24, which says, A dispute arose among his disciples as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is called the greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The disciples not only wanted to be great, but each of them wanted to be the greatest. Like Muhammad Ali crowed after he defeated Sonny Liston to become world heavyweight champion, I am the greatest. In the opinion of many, Ali lived up to that claim of being the greatest. But Jesus is critical about the pursuit of greatness among his followers. In this instance, he says, that if you want to become great, become a servant. Elsewhere, where he words it slightly differently, saying, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus begins with a negative example by pointing out to those in society who are considered as great, the kings and those in authority. He says that they lorded over the people, now, lording, lording it over them carries a negative connotation. It implies that those who think they are great are haughty and self-important and likely to abuse their power. We tremble and bow down before greatness. Greatness is associated with power and authority. The more power you possess, the greater you are. Jesus is saying, or asking, do you want to be like them? The poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley provides a description of the pursuit of greatness and the tragic results of its attainment. The poem's narrator describes what a world traveler tells him that he has seen in the desert. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, the two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, 
and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias was the king of kings. He was the greatest of the great. His kingdom extended as far as the eye could see. Still, the sneering Ozymandias is a tragic character. By the time our traveler comes upon the scene, only his shattered statue remains, lying on the barren desert sands. And if greatness has any value, it is of fleeting value. Jesus turns the notion of greatness upside down, not only in his teaching, but by his example. Remember that he was an itinerant teacher and healer from the backwaters of society. He had no claim to any kind of earthly status or power. Even the people from his hometown, when he came around teaching, said disparagingly, Is not this the carpenter's son? Now some have compared Jesus to the suffering servant in Isaiah from this passage, whose greatness is defined by servanthood. Isaiah says, See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Of course, he was lifted up on a cross. Even though Jesus' disciples seemed to get the message about seeking greatness for themselves, they could not let go of the idea that Jesus would not achieve greatness. The belief and the hope among Jesus' followers was that he was the long-awaited Messiah or Savior of the people of Israel. The word Messiah means king, and the particular king that they were thinking of was King David. King David ruled in the good old days. King David, by the way, had ruled a good thousand years before Jesus was born. But the people of Israel still held on to the idea that they could go back to those halcyon days. If they were to come up with a slogan for the Jesus movement that they envisioned, it would be, Make Israel Great Again. Was Jesus prescribing to some defeatist ideology where the people of Israel would live in poverty and submission to the Roman Empire or to any other great world power that would come along? The people who doubted that Jesus was the Messiah could not imagine how a disgraced teacher of no consequence who died naked and shamed on a cross could represent them and lead their nation to greatness. If he was God's son, they thought, it must be of some weak, second-rate God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Jesus does not have a problem with greatness. He has a problem with how we define greatness, how we live out our greatness. From the standpoint of the world, greatness was directly related to power, status, money, and resources, both among secular rulers and religion. From Jesus' standpoint, on the other hand, status was associated with humility, love, compassion, and honor.
From the world's standpoint, to be great meant to be a master. From Jesus' perspective, to be great meant to be a servant. So, from Jesus' perspective, what would it mean to be a great nation or a great leader? One modern leader with visions of greatness for his nation is Vladimir Putin. He would regain Russia's territory and power that she once held. Catherine the Great presided over Russia's golden age from 1762 to 1796. Under her rule, Russian, the Russian Empire grew larger and stronger. The arts flourished and the nobility lived in luxury. Russia became one of the world's great powers. Putin wishes to restore the golden age of the Russian Empire and become Putin the Great. His vision of greatness is to rule with fear and physical might both within his nation and among the other nations of the world. You can almost picture Putin say with an Ozymandian sneer, Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Unfortunately for Russia, and for the world, like Ozymandias, Putin's imperial visions may come to a tragic end. Considering the way the war in Ukraine is progressing, Putin may live to look upon nothing but ruins as far as the eye can see. For Putin... Greatness is attained through raw power and absolute authority. To be great is to be a master. But what about America? What would or could it mean to make America great again? First off, let's deal with that troubling word again. There is no idyllic golden age of America to which we can return. There is no Garden of Eden from which God ejected us. America's greatness has always been a work in progress. America's greatness comes not from her superior military and power and tremendous success and power generated by our economic engine. Our greatness comes from our servant attitude that we have demonstrated inward toward our own citizens and outward toward our brothers and sisters around the world. The aspiration to create a place where liberty and justice prevail for all is our source of greatness in good times and in bad. Now sure, there were times that we can look back upon nostalgically as the good old days. For Americans of my generation, we might look back fondly on the prosperous post-war years of the 1950s. The American dream promised a chicken in every pot and a car in every driveway. Hollywood created a mythical leave-it-to-beaver world where, in the words of Garrison Keillor, all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. In reality... Although America experienced post-war prosperity, not everyone benefited from it equally or thrived in it. Racial discrimination and urban poverty were common. 
Many so-called blue-collar workers toiled long hours in repetitive factory jobs, and the executives and white-collar workers lived lives of quiet desperation in the suburbs. Now, that's not a criticism. That's just reality. Life is always a struggle. I personally look back upon those times with fondness, and I'm thankful to have lived the childhood I did. But I know we weren't perfect. Anyway, we can't go home again even if we tried. We must remember that the America we love and respect comes from humble beginnings. It was built by common, hard-working people who came here looking for opportunity and a better life. It was built by carpenters and masons and farmers. Those masses of people who came to these shores were not people with royal backgrounds and great wealth. Even our first president, George Washington, despite his ultimate success as a military leader, was a humble man who downplayed his own worth. He said, I declare with utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to command, the command that I am honored with. He also didn't want to become president. He did not feel worthy. Despite his elevated position in history, we still don't refer to him as George the Great. Humility is not merely a Christian virtue. Humility is an essential aspect of every major religion. For that matter, humility is more than just a religious virtue. Humility is an essential democratic virtue. However, politics and humility just don't seem to go together. President George H.W. Bush joked, Those that travel the high road of humility in Washington are not bothered by heavy traffic. Politics requires ego. You need to present yourself as a better alternative than your opponent. But humility means that you are aware and you talk about your own failures and are respectful of those with whom you disagree. Humility requires an awareness of our own sinfulness and shortcomings. As Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we read in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. We should aspire to make America great again, and we can. But only if we remember what Jesus says about greatness. To be great again, our leaders and our citizens must once again develop that servant attitude. Then we will prosper. Then we will be lifted up. Then we will fulfill our rightful role in the coming of the kingdom of God. Amen. 
Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.